Open the Word of God to Romans, the third chapter. Romans chapter 3. And let us go directly to the 27th verse. And see what the Lord has to say by the hand of the Apostle Paul to the Romans in these last five verses. I read them to you. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Amen Amen and amen. It is important for us to remember that the apostle is correcting the errors of the Jewish legalists in these chapters of Romans that we are pursuing so far, and he will continue to do so for a while. It's important to remember that. So that when he refers to boasting, when he refers to works, when he refers to faith, he's referring to them in ways to set up and show the error of the Jewish legalists and to confirm the truth of the gospel. He is not using the words faith and works the way that James does in James chapter 2 and that we would understand in other places like even Romans chapter 6 or chapter 8. He is using them to set faith in opposition to the works of the law of Moses. A do and live system, while faith is a live and do system. Faith is not anywhere taught here as the means of regeneration, the condition for election, participation in Jesus Christ's death, meritorious before God. Nowhere is it taught like that in the Bible, and it's not taught that way here. Faith here is simply taught as the identifying mark of God's justified ones. They are not circumcised. They're believers. They're not descendants of Abraham. They're believers. They're not keepers of the law of Moses. No one could be. They're believers. That's the issue. That's all that the issue is. So we, who are always defensive to a point, because we have to live among Arminians, we go into a chapter like this and we see the word faith, And there's that reluctance to deal with faith fully because we're thinking that Paul's sounding like an Arminian. Oh, no, he isn't. Paul's the same one that would write Ephesians chapter 2 and say that you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead men have no faith. Faith is a gift of God, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. It is a fruit of the Spirit. But let's leave some of that aside. I'll refer to it briefly here and there. But let's look at these words and see what Paul intended by them. And let's rejoice in the power of the gospel as the saints in Rome sat there and had one of their brothers read them this epistle. Jews and Gentiles lined up on pews with some of those Jews having some nationalistic superiority thoughts. 
that they were better than the Gentiles, and that maybe they ought to add the works of the law and circumcision to the work of Christ in order to be saved, which was a common heresy that came out of Jerusalem that Paul dealt with at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, and that he wrote the Epistle of Galatians to counteract as those teachers had infiltrated and infected the churches of the Gentiles. Okay, let's look at the words here. Where is boasting then? Now, Paul has already taught that the Jews had a problem. They had a propensity to do something. And that propensity was to boast. Look at 2.17. Chapter 2 and verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. They weren't boasting about God. They were making a boast of themselves relative to God. Notice, the Jews had a problem because they knew they were God's chosen people. They loved to boast in that fact. Rather than boasting in the God that had chosen them, they boasted in the fact that they were chosen. That they were God's people and the Gentiles weren't. So Paul had pointed that out already. As we progress through the epistle, we ought to be recalling what Paul has already said so that we can understand these clauses and verses. And he's already pointed out that the Jews had a problem with wanting to boast about their relationship to God through Abraham and the law of Moses and the rite of circumcision. It's also found in verse 23. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? They made their boast that they had the law. The Gentiles didn't have it. They had it. They had the only means to get to heaven. So Paul comes along in 3.27 and says, Where is boasting then? After the plan of salvation that I have described in verses 21 through 26, where is boasting then? I have just described you as hopeless under the law. Verses 19 and 20 of this chapter. Look at what it says. We know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to you Jews who are under the law. I interpret the word, pronoun them for you. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul had put the Jews into a category of condemned guilty sinners right alongside the Gentiles, and there was no hope for them in the law. There was no hope for them simply being Jews. There was no hope for them in any connection they had to Abraham. Then, after having condemned them and locked them up as guilty, and their mouths stopped, they couldn't boast any further because Paul had just condemned them, then he showed that salvation is by God's grace, freely given through Jesus Christ's redemption. And the performance is based on God's faith and faithfulness and Christ's faith and faithfulness upon believers. Not upon those keeping the law. Not upon those performing, but the, having the identifying mark of faith in God. Where is boasting then? There's no room left for boasting. Glorious question. I love this question. Where is boasting then? When the, when the Lord presents the doctrine of salvation... He cuts off all boasting. We don't need anyone to get up in this church and give a testimony about how someone saved them or how they saved someone. We want to get up in this church and give all the glory to God who saved us 
by the only soul winner in the universe when it comes to our legal standing before God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If Hebrews 1.3 would say, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. He is our soul winner. And we delight in Him and we thank Him and we want to give our testimony of Him and Him alone. Do ministers play a role? The Apostle Paul would say, I have begotten you through the... That if it hadn't been for God saving them in advance, they would have... ...includes any boasting or confidence in man, even in the things that God gave man, like the Old Testament, like the law, like the rite of circumcision, like the father called Abraham, like the leader called Moses... It excludes boasting of anything because it's God's free grace through Jesus Christ's work. Free grace does not mean it was free to God. Free grace does not mean that there was not a price. It was the price that God paid by giving His own Son. Free grace does not mean that there's not work involved. The work was Jesus Christ's faithful work in obeying for us. And so it's all, it's all described there in context. And so it cuts off all boasting. It is excluded. We love this point so much that we make it the capstone of our seven proofs of unconditional salvation as the Bible teaches us. When we try to present the doctrine of salvation to others, we start with seven proofs. Remember, number one, man is unable. The Bible leaves man unable to do anything to please God. Therefore, salvation must be conditional. And we work down through several proofs that the Bible teaches. And when we reach the capstone, number seven, it is this. The true doctrine of salvation cannot involve human conditions. Otherwise, man would get glory to himself by distinguishing himself from those in hell. They cannot. Because the plan of salvation must give God all the glory. Now, does the Bible say that? Look at verse 2 of chapter 4, which we'll get to soon. All of chapter 4 is going to be about Abraham, because Abraham is going to be an illustration of how men get saved. And Abraham is chosen as the illustration, because the Jews, if they would have thought of any man as being saved, it would have been Abraham. He was the father of their nation. He was the friend of God. He was the father of the faithful. He was a great man. And so Paul uses him for an entire chapter, and he uses him extensively in the book of Galatians as well, because you might as well go for the, the main, the taproot of a tree, if you're gonna cut it down. You might as well go for the juggler, if you're gonna have someone bleed. And if you're gonna go after heresy like you would a tree or a person, then cut it off with Abraham. And that's how Paul uses Abraham. All of chapter four will be an illustration, Jews, You all know Abraham was saved. I don't even need to mention that. But how was he saved? So it starts out in verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? How far did Abraham get based on his flesh? When Abraham was alive in the world, how far did he get? And what was his relationship to God? And how? what can we learn from it? But then verse 2 is what we want. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. If Abraham had been justified by works, there was no law yet, 
Because the law didn't come for 430 years, or 400 years until Mount Sinai. No law yet. But there must have been some work system in place because the Jews thought you got saved by works. So Paul's asking in this second verse of chapter 4, If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. If you create a conditional system of salvation, the result is that man gets to glory. This is true of the Arminian scheme of salvation. God's love is equally distributed and equally shown and equally exhibited and equally given, offered to all men without exception or distinction. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for all the sins of all men without exception and without distinction. The Holy Spirit woos, leads, draws, whatever the Arminian uses in their particular appeal, all men without distinction. Therefore, the difference between hell and heaven is something that a man does by fulfilling a condition for heaven. Because God's work is equal on those in hell and those in heaven. And once that is done, faith becomes a work. Faith is not a work when a person believes that God justifies the ungodly. Faith becomes a work when God, when the doctrine is stated that God is trying to save all men, but you can only get saved if you believe. We understand faith to simply be the evidence of God's electing grace, justifying work in Christ, and regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. We do not believe in our old man to get a new man. We do not believe in our flesh to become spirit. We believe because we have a new man and because we have spirit by the regenerating power of Christ. This is our doctrine. The issue is, who gets all the glory? And God has arranged everything in the universe that He gets all the glory that no flesh should glory in His presence. You will not glory in heaven that you believed or did anything to distinguish yourself from anyone else. You will glory in heaven that God in mercy elected you before the world began, sent Christ in time to die for you, and regenerated you sometime during your life after conception. And that's why you're in heaven. Verse 2, I love it. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. There is no glorying before God. And Paul just flat out cuts off that argument that there can be no glorying before God. And if there can be no glorying before God, and a system of justification by works would give glory to man, then Abraham couldn't have been justified by works. Were you able to follow that? It's very simple. Do you see how many question marks there are in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4? All these question marks are the Apostle Paul knowing what Jewish legalists are going to... But, 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 but. And every time we talk to an Arminian, but, 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 but. Because they don't want to give God all the glory. They do not want to make Him the potter and themselves the clay. They want to be the potter and He's the clay. Save me. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's the potter speaking. And he makes of one lump, one vessel to honor and another vessel to dishonor. That's the potter. Men hate the potter. They want to be the potter. 
How many times do you drive around this city that is so religious and see a bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? Listen, brethren, God is your pilot. And you're not even a stewardess. It's unbelievable how they think. God is my co-pilot. Doesn't that make, that makes me sick and angry. God wouldn't waste himself, waste his time in a plane. He moves faster. We could go a thousand directions to blow that one to pieces. Chapter four and verse two is a nice commentary and a further thought on 327. Because we're speaking of boasting and glorying in man rather than all the glory being given to God. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. But there there is no glorying before God. Therefore, Abraham was not justified by works. He was justified some other way. He was shown to be just some other way. He did not earn favor with God and become justified by his works. You say, but what about James? James says that Abraham was justified by works. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified. And not by faith only. The system of faith includes proving that faith by works. Right Right now the apostle is not going to deal with works. Do you know what would happen if Paul tried to deal with works right now as being necessary to prove one's faith, to prove one's election, justification, and regeneration? He would dilute his message and the poor Jewish legalists would go home scratching their heads. What did he really say today? So he contrasts works against faith. Though if you read the rest of the epistle... And you read other epistles, you know that faith without works is dead and is no proof of anything. Oh, I want you to be settled on this as to why the language that is used was used. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded, period. By what law? By what law? Of works? Nay. No. Boasting can't be excluded by a system of works. Or by the works of the law, because a man would boast, what if one man were able to keep the law? Now you know what the Bible's already told us. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 so far. No man can keep the law. It shuts every mouth, and, and all the world has to become guilty before God. But what if one man did keep the law and he got to heaven? What would be the distinguishing difference between him being in heaven and the rest of the human race and the rest of his nation being in hell? What he had done. Right. Lord, look! Do do, do men think that way? Did Jesus ever meet men like that that were Jews? Did they ever walk up to him and say, Master, what's the greatest commandments? And Jesus would tell them what the two commandments were and say, The whole law and the prophets hang on these, and I've kept them from my youth up. But you've overlooked one little thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. Come follow me. Oh, oh. But they like to think, and they like to speak. I've kept them all from my youth up. That's how they would talk when they get to heaven. What are the wicked going to appeal to when God is going to cast them into the lake of fire? Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and in thy name have cast out devils? Look what they appeal to. If anyone got to heaven based on something they did for another or that other for them, they're going to get to heaven and talk about it because that is the nature of man. If he has any role in his salvation, he wants to talk about it, and he wants to take credit for it, and he wants to steal glory from God. And I want to tell you something about the God of glory. He doesn't share his glory. 
So the first Corinthians chapter one tells you as a church to look among yourselves and to see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise, not many rich, not many important. We are the nothings of this world, and he has saved the nothings to bring to nothing them that think they're something. Right. Why? So that no flesh will glory in his presence. Why? That he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. First right. Corinthians chapter one, twenty five through thirty one. Thank you, Lord. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We thank God that He saved us by His grace. And all we can boast in is Him. Right. All we can boast in is Him. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. All the glory belongs to Him. The Apostle in this 27th verse says, By what law of works? Nay, no. A system of salvation by works would not work because it would give glory to man and steal it from God. Paul is using the word law here in a slightly different way. He is not referring to the law of Moses directly. He's using the word law to refer to a doctrine, a system, an economy, a religion, or a principle of law. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what system or doctrine or program or plan or economy of salvation is it excluded? By a system or doctrine or program of salvation by works? Nay, that wouldn't get the job done. Men would be boasting. So that he continues his play on this word law by stating this. But by the law of faith. Look at the words. Law and faith, he's just taken great pains to pull apart and distinguish. So he's using the word law in a slightly different way than the law of Moses. He's using the word law to describe a system or an economy, or a doctrine, or a plan, or a program of salvation. A doctrine, or economy, or system, or plan of salvation that involves works would not cut off boasting. So he said, nay. A doctrine, or a plan, or an economy, or a system of justification by faith, the way that faith is described here, cuts off all boasting. The Arminian will boast in heaven. He must. All you have to do is listen to their testimonies. All you have to do is ask them what made a difference between them and the closest relative that they tried to witness to or the person that they have witnessed to the most. What made the difference? Their theology makes no distinction except that they were a better person and they humbled themselves before God's Word and they invited Jesus into their heart and they made a decision for Jesus and thus they were regenerated. They end up distinguishing themselves from others, God did not make the distinction at all. God did everything, and Christ did everything, and the Holy Spirit did everything for both the one in heaven and the one in hell equally. So faith, when it's viewed as a condition, becomes a law of works. But faith, when it's used simply as evidence, or our personal claim to justification, in the first step of our justification, that's not a law of works. That's the law of faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. 
Phinehas killed two fornicators, it was counted to him for righteousness. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's counted to you for righteousness. And then we're to add to that faith, virtue, and a whole lot of other things. Genesis 15, 6. When Abraham was taken outside and said, count the stars, that's how great your seed's going to be. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. His standing in heaven didn't change one whit. That's just, the, that's just the signal event in his life that God focused on to show faith that Paul could use in Romans 3 and 4 and in the book of Galatians to show how Abraham was justified because he took that event and, and praised that act of faith. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 teaches us that Abraham was faithful in other acts in his life well before chapter 15. How did he take... I've already said these things, but I want this point solid in your minds. And I do not like having to work so hard, but I have to work so hard to undo all the heresy that we've been taught by Arminians. How did Abraham, in the previous chapter, 14, take on four kings that had just defeated five kings with 318 trained servants? Do you think there was a little bit of faith involved? Did he know who had given him the victory? Did he give a tithe to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God? Did he commune with Melchizedek? Was there blessing in a worship service that took place between Melchizedek and Abraham before they got to 15 when he was justified? So we have an unjustified reprobate in chapter 14, according to the Arminians. We have an unjustified reprobate in Genesis chapter 14 that is worshiping God with full faith, taking on enemies in the name of the Lord, and coming back and giving a tithe to God for the great victory he's won. Hello? No. Not. Wrong. And you back up from there to chapter 13. You back up from there to chapter 12. Why in the world did Abraham ever leave Ur of the Chaldeans? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, by faith. By faith. But it was that signal event of believing a promise of God that God focused on as important in his life that would be used in the New Testament. Just like it was in Phinehas. What motivated Phinehas to go put a javelin through two fornicating parties in a tent, an Israelite and a Moabite. What motivated him to do it? Since, according to the Arminian scheme, he didn't become justified until the javelin went through them both. What propelled him since he was an unjustified, condemned, guilty reprobate? He was an elect, justified, regenerated on fire, full speed ahead, zealous Christian. Though he didn't even know Christ yet. He just knew the promised seed that was coming. That's what drove him. He had a spirit within him already that propelled him forward to do that. It's just that the event was evidence to the whole nation and God picked that particular event out in his life to say it was counted to him for righteousness. That was proof that he was a righteous man. It was a righteous deed. And I'm going to bless him and his seed to a thousand generations. He'll never lack a man to stand before me because of that deed on his part. That's not when he was justified. That's just when he showed everyone that he was justified. And that's the event God picked to declare him just. And this, these are the things we must remember as we read through these verses. And so what we have in the last part of verse 27 is the law of faith. The law of faith means a system or a doctrine a plan, an economy of salvation that focuses on faith rather than the works of the law. 
There was the law of works. The system or the program or the economy of salvation and justification by the works of Moses' law. Then there's this one, which Paul has established because he's pointed out that the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ's redemptive work is unto and upon all them that believe. And verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Believing in Jesus, our faith is the signal event that first of all declares we are the children of God and justified in the sight of God. It's just like Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Though the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, there were other things Abraham had done before that by which he had obtained a good report through faith. Isn't that what Hebrews 11 is all about? Verse 2, through faith, the elders obtained a good report. Abraham had a good report card with God before he ever got to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. The words of Jonathan are ended on this particular point. I hate all lies and heresy. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. I do not think that I feel much different than the Apostle Paul who had to spend most of the epistles of the New Testament combating Jewish legalism, and i got to combat Arminianism. They're both wrong. They both steal glory from the God of heaven. We don't care about a man named John Kelvin. We care about a man named Jesus Christ. There are so many churches that want to name their John Kelvin, Presbyterian Church. Oh, give me Jesus Christ, the Baptist Church. Verse 28, Therefore, and I'm not going to explain it, you should understand it. Therefore, now, therefore, is drawing a conclusion, but Paul makes it very plain. Therefore, we conclude. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. No man could keep the deeds of the law. Men can believe, and they should believe, and they're commanded to believe. But they won't believe because they have in their hearts rebellion against the God of heaven. Therefore, we conclude because of what I have just given to you in chapter 118, all the way down through 320, Jews and Gentiles are condemned, mouths shut, and they're guilty. Because of how I have described salvation in verses 21 through 26, it cannot be by works. And because as I have just explained in verse 27, any system of works would allow boasting, and there cannot be boasting before God. Therefore, on the grounds of these three arguments, these three categories of argument, we come to this conclusion. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. You Jewish legalists are wrong on the grounds that you're condemned and guilty and your mouth's shut. You Jewish legalists are wrong on the grounds that God gave salvation and justification freely through Jesus Christ's righteousness. And three, your system would involve boasting and there can be no boasting. So on those three grounds, and I've repeated myself here, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, and that word faith is to be understood in the context that we have given it several times, and I go forward. Verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Now you think, you read that and you say, well, of course not. But now what if you were a Jew? Right. What if you were a Jew with Jewish legalist tendencies? Well, he, he's mainly our God. I mean, after all, he chose us. Is he the God of the Jews only? It's a good question. Paul knew it would be asked. Is he the God of the Jews only? So he asked the question for them. 
Is he not also of the Gentiles? Did the Jews know that before Abraham there were, there were great patriarchs that were saved and went to heaven like Enoch, like Noah? Did they know that? Yeah, they knew that. So that's coming to bear on their consciences right now as they wanted to think that he was the God of the Jews only. Paul's asking the question, is he the God of the Jews only? Hmm. They knew that he was the God of saints before Abraham. They knew that he was the God of exceptional Gentiles like Melchizedek and Rahab. They knew that those Gentile believers that were sitting on both sides of them in the pew while the epistle was being read to them, that foolish thought that was in their heart, if they, let, if they gave vent to it and were to speak it, they would be condemning the brethren that had been baptized and were members of that assembly and church. Is he the God of the... Oh, this is painful. For a Jew that has been doing a little bit of talking in the church at Rome so that Paul had to write this epistle, this was very painful. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you are the God of the Gentiles also. Yes, of the Gentiles also. He doesn't have to give an explanation because the explanation is obvious. There were those before Abraham that were saved by God that were not Hebrews. There were those under Abraham, after Abraham, that were saved by God that were Canaanites. And there were some Roman citizens, Gentiles, sitting on the pews before and after these Jewish legalists that were corrected by Paul's questions. Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Now, brethren, this little argument here is sweet and precious, and you may miss it, and you may not think that it's very important, but here is the reasoning of this twenty, of this 30th verse. He asks in verse 29 a question that they would raise. Are you trying to tell me that God saves Jews and Gentiles alike and He's equally the God of both? Yes, He is equally the God of both and saves both. Seeing it is one God. There's only one God, so there's, there's not two plans of salvation because there's two gods. There's only one God. And there's only one plan of salvation that I've described in the context. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith. Those are the Jews. They're called the circumcision. And the future tense is used because there were more of them yet to be called. You know, there were still some to be called. That's one aspect of the future tense being used because not all had been born yet. And yet there's another sense that I want to give you. The most important part of justification in in a particular sense is a great day of judgment when we stand before God. When we stand before God and, and are declared righteous through Jesus Christ's work for us and our name in the book of life, that is the final phase of justification because that is the formal declaration to the whole universe that we are indeed the sons of God by justifying adoption. So that is yet future. That is not the main thrust of Paul's point here. I just wanted to comment on the switch from past to future tense. Here's his main thrust. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Now, brethren, you should have already read verse 28. Therefore, we conclude 
that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is there any difference in the God? No, it is one God over Jews and Gentiles. So there's not two plans of justification for Jews and Gentiles because there's one God. And there isn't two plans of justification because all are justified by faith as stated in verse 28. Then what does verse 30 mean? It means this. If you can find a difference between the words by and through, then you can show that there's two plans of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. But since you can't show any difference between the words by and through, there is one means of justification from one God over Jews and Gentiles, and it's by faith. His play is on the words by and through. Do you think there's two plans? If you take any other position, you'll end up with two plans of salvation. One by faith and one through faith. There's no difference in those two vehicles. Faith is the identifying mark and evidence and is counted for righteousness to Jews and Gentiles, whether it's by or through. It's a play on words. You say, would Paul and the Holy Spirit do that to us? Yes, when you had Jewish legalists looking for every little bit of distinction they could between Jews and Gentiles, Paul points out, if you can find a difference in the meaning of by and through, then you can show a difference between how Jews and Gentiles are justified. But they're justified the same way because verse 28 is our conclusion. Therefore, we conclude that a man, no distinction, Jew or Gentile, a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Just think through these questions. Is he not also the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which is going to justify both the same way. By faith and through faith. Verse 31, next question. Do we then make void the law through faith? This is, they're, they're going to ask this. Now wait a minute, Paul. So far, your arguments have been overwhelming. We have to agree with everything you've said thus far. But listen, you know, and I, and we know, that God gave the law to Moses in one dramatic, significant event on Mount Sinai. You know, and we know, that God inspired Moses to write the books of the law, the five books, that say we are his peculiar people and that the law was going to distinguish us from all the nations of the earth and that they would look at us and say, who has a God so close to them as all this law? Are you going to make that law void? Serious question. The way you're preaching, the law has no value at all and it's just a bunch of garbage. Do we then make void the law through faith? Does a system of faith that does not justify by the works of the law, make the law of no importance or consequence? God forbid. Yea, the law of faith, or the system of faith, or the gospel of faith, that we believe and preach here, and that Paul believed and preached there, established the law. How does it establish the law? It puts the law in its proper place for its proper purpose. And what is that? To show men condemned and to shut their mouths. It establishes the law. It establishes the law in the sense that it condemns all men and they need a Savior. The truth of the gospel establishes the law in that Jesus Christ fulfilled every promise and prophecy contained in it. Every type and shadow contained in it. He fulfilled every single one of them. 
Salvation by Jesus Christ through God's grace establishes the law. Jesus said, Till heaven or earth pass, not one jot or one tittle of this law shall pass until all be fulfilled. Right. How, did it, how was the law established by the doctrine of grace? Jesus Christ obeyed every precept of the law perfectly. He obeyed every positive precept of the law perfectly. He kept every commandment and then he suffered the consequences of the law in its negative requirements, meaning the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Because our sins were put upon Christ who then had to die to pay for those sins. The truth of the gospel confirms and fulfills the law in many different respects. It establishes the law to its proper place, its proper purpose, and Jesus Christ fulfilled it on both sides. He kept every commandment and He suffered its curse for you and me. The gospel fulfills the law. Look at the Jews. They wore it, they quoted it, they kissed it, they memorized it, they copied it, they translated it. But how did that establish the law? None of them could keep it. The gospel lifts the law up as high as it can be lifted. Jesus kept it and suffered its punishment for us so that we can stand before God in this condition. Chapter 8, and with this I close. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Praise the Lord. Does a system of faith overthrow and, and turn the law into just ridiculous waste or vanity? God forbid, Paul would say. The gospel of grace and the system of faith establishes the law. It puts it in its proper place and truly fulfills its purpose. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, no one could keep the law, because our flesh is too sinful and weak. For what the law could not do, it wasn't established by Moses. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We have kept the law of God. And in the sight of God, we are viewed as those that have kept the law of God because Jesus Christ did it for us in the likeness of sinful flesh. What is the identifying mark here? It's not faith. What is the identifying evidence right here in this context of those that are justified and have the righteousness of Christ upon them? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See, if we take the Arminian approach, that when we found, find a verse with the word faith in it, that it means decisional regeneration, then here it means holiness regeneration. That you need to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh, and then you can get justified for being righteous. Forget it all. They're heretics. The point is, Paul asked the question that the Jews would ask. Do we then make void the law through a system of faith? If we exalt faith up so high... What does it do to that law that was given to Moses and that the Israelites kept for 1,500 years? What does it do to it? Does it make it void? Paul, you're making the law void. We both know it was very important to God and to the people of Israel. God forbid that I'm making it void. 
I'm establishing it in its proper place and for its proper purpose. Jesus Christ kept every commandment of it and He suffered the curse of it so that the righteousness of the law could be fulfilled in us because the way you've used the law, no one ever fulfilled it. Praise God for His glorious grace through Jesus Christ our Lord who in the likeness of sinful flesh kept every commandment, suffered the curse, and we are saved and justified because of that. And the way that we know that we're saved and the way we claim that salvation and the way we have the assurance in our hearts that we are saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because it requires the work of the Holy Spirit of God for a man to believe. And only a justified man will believe. And only one ordained to eternal life will believe. And then to that faith we should add virtue, knowledge, patience, God and His temperance, brotherly kindness and charity. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Amen.